Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Daniel Johnston shines a light on photobiomodulation. But first up, here's the news. Smart bees. Researchers from the Queen Mary University of London have shown that a very few bumblebees can innovate and solve the puzzle of pulling strings to get food. Most bumblebees can be trained to pull strings to get food. More than half the bees that watch them can learn from the trained bees. Trained bees then pass this information on to most of their hive, who then show the next generation. This is the first time cultural information has been seen to spread from a single individual in invertebrate animals. The string pulling task is similar to those used to test the intelligence of animals with backbones, like mammals and birds. Pull the string! Bumblebees are a fuzzy type of bee that don't make honey for the winter, because usually only the queens survive the winter to start a new colony every spring. They pollinate plants so they contribute to agriculture, but they aren't cultivated for honey like honeybees. When single bees were presented with a puzzle that required them to pull strings to get sugar water, only 2 out of 110 bumblebees worked out how to pull the strings. Next, the researchers train the bumblebees in several steps. First, they allow them access to blue paper circles with string on the edge and a small well of sugar water in the centre. The bees learn quickly that these blue paper flowers held food. Then the researchers put a light plexiglass cover over the paper flower, just barely covering the sugar well. The bumblebees found that they could move the paper disc with their legs and mandibles enough to expose the sugar well and eat. The researchers covered the blue paper disc a little more, and the bumblebees took the extra effort to get to the food. Ultimately, the whole blue paper disc was covered, and the bumblebees found that they could pull the string with the same motions of their legs and mandibles that had moved the paper disc before. The bumblebees had now learned to pull a string to bring a blue paper disc with sugar water out from under a slim pane of plexiglass. I should mention at this point that the published paper online contains videos of each of these steps. When observer bees accompanied the trained bees, 60% of them learned to pull the strings to get the blue discs from under the plexiglass to eat the sugar water. When the trained bees were returned to their colonies, the string pulling technique spread to most of the worker bees in the colony. BC, bee do. The big question is how can animals with such small brains accomplish such sophisticated learning and cultural transfer of knowledge? What are the neurological mechanisms? We knew that bees are social, but we had no idea that they can pass on cultural information as well. The paper was titled, Associative Mechanisms Allow for Social Learning and Cultural Transmission of String Pulling in an Insect, and was published in the journal Public Library of Science, Biology. Pull the string! In other smart bee news, in 2008, researchers at the Queensland Brain Institute 
based at the University of Queensland, discovered that bees can count. Honeybees were trained to find sugar water placed on any of four yellow stripes were unable to find it at a fifth stripe. As well as yellow stripes, the bees were able to count objects they hadn't seen before to find a sugar water reward. The bees would also return to the right place after the sugar water was removed, proving that they weren't simply sniffing out the food. The researchers also changed the distance from the hive to the rewards to make certain the bees weren't just measuring the distance instead of counting. The paper was titled Evidence for Counting in Insects and was published in the journal Animal Cognition back in 2008. And from bees to fruit flies. Flies remember. Researchers in Germany have been using fruit flies as a model for aging humans. They've identified a substance made by our bodies and found in food that can reverse age-related memory impairment in fruit flies. And they've manipulated genes to cause premature age-related memory impairment in young fruit flies. If the analogies hold as well as they usually do, similar mechanisms will be at work in human age-related memory problems, and the same substance that reversed the problem in flies will help humans as well. The memory-aiding substance is called spermidine, as it was first isolated from sperm. However, it's also found in a wide variety of foods. Spermidine is a polyamine compound, which means it has two or more ammonia complexes in the molecule. Polyamine levels drop as we age, and the lower levels are believed to be connected with many diseases of ageing. Fruit flies suffer an age-related decline in their memory of smells that they need to avoid. Aversive olfactory memory. This has become an established model for age-related memory impairment in humans. The researchers found that with sufficient levels of spermidine, either given as a supplement or increased from genetically engineering the fruit flies to produce extra, could reverse and prevent age-related decline by stimulating autophagy. Autophagy, you may recall, is the self-eating process in cells that won the Nobel Prize in Medicine or Physiology last week. Autophagy allows cells to break down dysfunctional components and recycle them into new ones. In fruit flies, the researchers observed that age-related memory impairment in both aged fruit flies and young flies genetically engineered to suffer premature age-related memory impairment had a change in the connection between two brain cells, the synapses. Specifically, the presynaptic active zone. The presynaptic active zone is where the neuron sending the signal releases neurotransmitter messenger molecules that are received by the receptors of the receiver neuron at the synapse where they meet. The presynaptic active zone of the nerve cells grew larger and more complex with age, which led to them being less capable of encoding new memories. Brain cells and nerve cells communicate across synaptic gaps by sending neurotransmitter chemicals to each other. The effect of the larger presynaptic active zone is to enhance the transmission of signals, but unfortunately that inhibits instead of helping make new memories. When they fed the flies spermidine, the fruit flies' brain cells were able to break down and recycle the enlarged parts of the presynaptic active zone that had grown with age and replace them with smaller working versions. The fruit flies were able to learn new things again. 
The researchers genetically engineered flies with four copies of the BRP gene, which made young flies grow the same larger presynaptic active zone and end up with the same memory problems as the aged flies. Feeding the genetically engineered flies spermidine caused the same learning improvement as seen in the aged flies. If the analogy between memory impairment in fruit flies and humans continues to hold, then spermidine supplements, or a change in diet to eat more aged cheese, soybeans, mushrooms, green peas, chicken liver, rice bran, mango, broccoli and cauliflower, might be a great help in restoring normal learning ability in people with age-related memory impairment. The paper was titled, Spermidine Suppresses Age-Associated Memory Impairment by Preventing Adverse Increase of Presynaptic Active Zone Size and Release, and was published in the journal Public Library of Science, Biology. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Photobiomodulation. Daniel Johnston is a neuroscientist at the University of Sydney. He gave a talk about his research into photobiomodulation for Inspiring Australia at the Ultimo Library in Sydney. I visited him in his office and began by asking him What is photobiomodulation? Yeah, so photobiomodulation, it's the use of certain wavelengths of low-intensity light to stimulate biological processes in cells or tissues. So the wavelengths of light are very specific, but what we found is that if you treat cells or tissues with certain wavelengths, you can get a change in their properties and you can get an increase in protection and resilience of those cells or tissues. And... The protection that you get isn't always direct for the part that's being lit. No, that's right. So that's been an interesting finding we've had recently is that most people have focused on the direct effects of the light. So if you're treating a cell directly, you you get benefit and that's been fairly widely shown. What we've recently shown though is that you can treat a peripheral tissue, say a limb, and get protection of another tissue that's distal from that. So for example, the brain is what we focus on. So do you have a mechanism of how that works or is it something that just happens? Yeah, that's still up in the air and it's something we're pursuing fairly vigorously. There's been a few ideas floated around the place. One is that you might be stimulating stem cells in the bone marrow that can then be recruited to the brain and have a lot of protective effects. Uh, It may also be possible that we're just stimulating some sort of factors, whether they be cells or molecules that then circulate in the bloodstream and provide protective effects to the brain. So there's quite a bit known now about various protective factors in the blood that can have these effects but exactly which molecule or which cell we're stimulating we're not too sure but we do are fairly confident that we're getting a protective effect by doing this treatment. So how do you figure out or how did you find out that stimulating an unrelated part of the body helps say the brain stimulating a limb helps the brain because that seems a bit indirect Yeah, it was a bit of a jump and we'd done a lot of work on the direct stimulation of the brain in rodent models, which is fine for rodents that have a fairly small brain, but what you see even at the wavelengths that we use is that you get absorbance of the light by the tissue. So if you tried to apply this treatment to the skull in humans, basically that light isn't going to reach the deep brain centres where it's needed. So we needed to find an alternative approach and 
It really arose out of a few things. Firstly, there was a few observations scattered through the literature where people had observed this effect of some sort of indirect action of photobiomodulation, but they were really incidental findings and they weren't discussed too much. And there's another precedent for this as well. So there's something that's become well established now called remote ischemic preconditioning. So what that means is it's basically restricting blood flow temporarily to a limb, say an arm or a leg, and with that it's been shown that you get a, a short-term protection of the heart or the brain. So that's a, something that's been used now in, um, in surgical settings, say, and it's been trialled there where you want to protect a vulnerable organ before surgery. So we knew that inducing a mild stress in a peripheral tissue like a limb can protect uh, more critical to life organs like the heart or the brain. So it was really taking those two ideas, putting them together, and then just trying it in the lab. And yeah, it was quite, uh, it was quite surprising actually when we firstly tried it in a, a mouse model of Parkinson's disease, where we took our little light and we shone it to the body of the animal and covered the head with foil so that no light could get through. And sure enough, we found that we got protection of the brain and we've taken it on from there and done it in a few different models, uh, rodent models now, and recently scaled it up in a study in France to do some preliminary studies in monkey models and um, also finding there that if we treat the leg or even the stomach of the animal, we seem to get protection of the brain beyond anything that we would have expected. And is this giving you effects on the brain that you can't reach with other sorts of treatment? Well, most of the treatment... So we focus on neurodegenerative diseases, really, so Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, and there aren't really any effective treatments for those at the moment. All the treatments that are available really just treat the symptoms, but the brain continues to die away and the degeneration progresses. So relative to what's available now, anything that can slow the progression of the disease is beneficial and better than what we have. There's a lot has been done in, in various animal studies, a lot of different interventions showing benefit. And so how ours compares to those, we're not sure. The test will really come when we start to be able to trial it on patients, which are far more complex than the animal models we work with. But given how safe, um, cheap, non-invasive, um, readily complied with this treatment is, the idea that you could potentially just shine a bit of light on a limb or on your stomach for a few minutes a day. Uh, it sounds like a, a good avenue to pursue in terms of patient compliance and a simple treatment. And what sort of lights are these? So we use LED light. LED or laser are both effective as long as they're of a particular wavelength and a particular power. Dose is very important with this. Too much and you don't get a benefit. And so in the lab we have LED panels that basically emit 670 nanometer light, which is in the red part to the near-infrared part of the spectrum at a certain wavelength. So there's commercially, uh, commercially available devices out there already that do this job. And I think the market for that is probably going to increase as more becomes known about photobiomodulation. You've probably seen the ones on late-night TV for, you know, restoring hair growth and all that sort of thing. So there's a whole range and some have been well-tested and others not so well-tested. But... Uh, the ones we use were really developed for the Department of Defence in the US as a way to accelerate healing in wounded soldiers. And um, yeah, we, we found them very effective and they're a, a good tool to use for this sort of purpose. Do you think once you've got some results with your human trials 
that this might lead to people having machines at home to use every day? Well, definitely. Um, hopefully, if we can make the case that this works in, in humans, these are very small portable devices. So our handheld device is basically the size of a tape recorder or something like that. So something that can be held, have it had in home, they're relatively cheap and they don't break down or anything like that. So it's a good long-term investment. So that's the idea with this, really. We don't want a treatment where patients are going to have to go into the clinic every week and receive it. Something that they can use in the comfort of their own home, they can take with them if they travel and can be applied by a carer or themselves even. That's the, the ultimate goal of this work. So how far in the future would you imagine the human test would be? It's hard to judge. I think there's a few things that we have to, to iron out with this and I think we need to understand a bit better exactly how it works to make sure there's not going to be any adverse effects of it. But from everything we've seen, it's it's very innocuous in terms of adverse effects. So there should, it's, it seems very safe. The challenge, I think, is going to be... Another challenge that we have is working out is there an optimal target away from the brain that gives you the best benefit. So I mentioned in the monkeys, we tried the leg and we tried the the belly, but we need to do a bit more to work out is there one place that we should be advising people to to shine this light. And once we get beyond that, it's really trying to establish a bit of a trial to, to show that it works. But I mean, as I said, with a lot of these diseases that don't have any real treatments available to slow the progression and with having these light devices that have already been approved by the Food and Drug Administration in the US, Therapeutic Goods Administration in Australia, they can be purchased commercially. I would be advising anyone that asked me that it might be worthwhile if they had the resources available to them to buy one of these and try it out and and see if you get any benefit from it. And I really see that you've got nothing to lose except for a small bit of startup investment. Maybe you could open up a citizen science program. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. You never know what, what, what might happen. But, um, yeah, it would be something I'd, I would be interested in. Um, so I think in the next couple of years we should know a bit more about exactly how it works and be able to at least advise people on the best way to apply this treatment um, to give them the best chance of an effect. And you mentioned that the US military are using um, similar light sources for healing. What sort of things are they healing? Yeah, well, it's an interesting background to this, and I'm not sure if the US military still do use it, but um, the way it it sort of happened is that over 100 years ago now, uh, there was one scientist, Niels Finson, who won a Nobel Prize for his work in showing that red light heals uh, wounds, really, and lesions associated with smallpox. And we sort of then went through a period where you know vaccination was discovered and widely implemented there was the the red light treatment sort of went to the back burner until the late 60s when lasers were invented and then it i guess this photobiomodulation really got pushed forward by nasa um, in the 90s when they were wanting to grow plants in outer space for some reason i'm not sure why but they found that the lights were also beneficial in um, reducing muscle wasting in the astronauts when you're at long periods of weightlessness, you get wasting of your muscles. And based on this, they developed some prototypes and it was from there it was picked up by the Department of Defense. And uh, that's the device that we use today. So really it was just to heal wounding, superficial wounds in soldiers injured on the battle lines. So a lot of work's been done showing that 
the photobiomodulation is beneficial against superficial wound, whether it's a, a cut or um, soft tissue injury or inflammation or even pain, things like that. A lot of work done in that area. And it's only probably in the last 10 years or so that it's been pushed forward into looking at it for more chronic diseases like the neurodegenerative diseases that we, we look at now. And for any students who might want to enter into your kind of career, what do you recommend that they study or what path should they take? There's a lot of options open to you, really. I, I, I took a science path and a biomedical science degree, it was called, which was really fascinating and it gives you a good taste of human biology and uh, human health and disease. So that's always a good pathway through, but any science degree, really most universities are pretty flexible now and from there you can move into postgraduate study so I went into a PhD from that and that's when you really get a taste of full-time research and a bit of independence over a project so that's a, a fascinating experience very hard work but it's a very rewarding at the same time I would say so that would be my advice in getting into that um, sort of pathway Things are pretty tough in the research community at the moment in terms of funding and that's something that we all hope changes very soon but we don't see much sign of movement at the moment. But that said, you know, I would still recommend you, if you do have an interest in, in medical research, pursue it, work hard and we'll keep pushing hard to try and change the landscape so that there's, there's a lot of options for people going forward. And a lot of things are opening up in terms of interdisciplinary research now where the biologists work with engineers and computer scientists and mathematicians to really try and solve some of the big problems in health that are going to, to hit us in the future. So there's a lot of work to be done and a lot of opportunities for science-based careers, I think, going forward. You're saying that indirectly the work you're doing on it will be helping neurodegenerative diseases in the future. And directly, in the past, it's been used for wound healing and pain control and a few other things. Are these lights going to end up in GPs' surgeries and in ambulances? It'll be interesting to see. I wouldn't be surprised. It seems that the more we do on it, the more we show that it has such a broad range of effects against any sort of cell damage. And it's, we've got some ideas on how that works. We think that what we're doing is inducing a, a mild stress response basically and the body's evolved over many millions of years of evolution a lot of molecular systems that are stimulated in response to stress and collectively enhance the resilience of our tissues so that's the system that we think we're tapping into with with the light so the more that more research that's done and the more models that are looked at and the more effects across a broad range of diseases that we see, I think it really makes the case for using this more widely. At the moment, it is used fairly widely in dental surgeries and also uh, by physiotherapists and that sort of thing. So really still focusing on the superficial injuries. But, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if uh, down the track we're seeing these devices in, in GPs, surgeries or ambulances or even spa retreats where you know rather than going and sitting in this uv solarium you go into a red light solarium or something like that i do know they're on the market for a couple of hundred thousand dollars so maybe in a, a little while when the prices come down that could be an option as well but absolutely there was a lot of skepticism about this when i started working in the area probably about five years ago 
And there still is a lot of scepticism, as you'd expect, if you're saying you can treat a brain disease with some light. Um, I can understand that, and I was sceptical my myself when I started out. But I have noticed over that time that the scepticism has died away a little bit, at least, and rather than just outright dismissing it, people are now wanting to see the evidence and actually asking some more probing questions about how it works and, and how we can explain those effects. So give it another few years, and I think it will continue to gain traction amongst the scientists and amongst the general public and its use will become more widespread, I would say. Well, Daniel Johnston, thank you very much. Thanks very much, Ian. That was neuroscientist Daniel Johnston talking about healing the brain by shining lights of the right wavelength for the right amount of time on a different part of the body. Photobiomodulation. For those who were wondering about the soundbite in the news, that was Bella Lugosi from the movie Glen or Glenda, produced by Ed Wood. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, congratulations, standing ovations, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Check out the Patreon page, patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the community radio network, including 8 C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambaka Valley, and 3MBR in the Mallee border districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, then you can explore more than 850 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel, at youtube.com slash c slash diffusion radio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.